Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is episode 14. In this episode, I'm talking to Jordan Isaka, a local Seattle player that's known for its high-level legacy skills. Jordan also provides commentary on Card Kingdom's Monday Night Legacy events and also in their Legacy Preservation 1K tournament series. Jordan's claim to fame was his Legacy Blue-White-Red Standstill deck that he played in an SCG Legacy Open. We had a great time in this episode of Kitchen Table Magic. I hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, this is Sam here with Kitchen Table Magic, and I am here with Jordan Isaka sitting on his kitchen table. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing great, Sam. How are you? The first thing I'd like you to do is if you can introduce yourself. My name is Jordan Isaka. I'm a, I work as a business analyst from Holland America Line. I, I'm a magician, as I refer to myself. I have played over you know a lot of different tournaments, a lot of different people. I've played for a long time, probably since geez, like Ice Age, I think was my Sick. first my first pack of cards. You know, I have an older brother that really kind of got me in and, and pushed me into the game. And uh, I really, uh, you know, I, I just like the game a lot. I've always enjoyed it. And uh, I'm here to talk about it with you today. You know, you're known as one of the Elder Dragons up here in the Seattle area. And you stream and you cast and you do commentary for Card Kingdom's Legacy Preservation Series and also some of their Monday Night Legacy games, right? Yeah, I, I certainly have. Uh, I've talked a lot about uh, my feelings about the game and my feelings about certain decks. I have very strong opinions on certain decks that I deem are bad, that other people believe are good. And there's reasons why I, I don't like those decks. But, you know, for the for, for the big part of the extent of the uh, of casting, I just think it's the, the gameplay is so interesting. It's so fascinating. It's so deep. And players always have a perceived idea of what is good and what isn't good. And always interesting to see what those lines are. I love the different layers that casters talk about when they talk about gameplay. Watching magic is a little bit boring. There's pieces of paper on a <laughs> yeah, table and yeah. people's hands are moving around. Yeah. It's not the most glamorous. So to really enjoy that, you've got to see people talk about it. And I think that you do a great job. Well, thank you. You know, I, I really appreciate that because uh, I've always tried to or I've always strive to understand the game on a couple of different levels too. Uh, not just on the gameplay aspect, but also on the mental aspect, on um, you know, on a on on more aspects than just playing the game on just winning and losing, right? There's also like mental stamina and mental fortitude, right? And being able to pick the deck that is right for the tournament but is wrong for the matchup. It's another really interesting concept that not a lot of people talk about, but it's certainly very important in the onset of looking at a tournament too. So. Uh, Competitive-wise, I've always been really uh, engaged with the form, engaged with Magic in general. When did you start playing Magic? Oh, boy. I think my first pack of cards must have been a pack of Ice Age. Wow. was a starter deck. I had an older brother who had friends who had older brothers. And this is always how it begins, you know. It's all, they always lead you into these awful situations, and and he was playing with his friends, and he told he wanted somebody to play with at home, and and he was like, "Oh, you should get cards, right? You've got an allowance. You should buy these cards." So I bought these cards, and he taught me how to play. And of course, he taught me the wrong way. And, just beat, <laughs> and he would just beat me up, right, all day, you know, just like what a little brother's supposed to do, where he's like playing all these crazy things, and I'm like, I don't even understand what that card does, right? And you know, it was really, it really, it it grew to me and I liked it and it was just another medium for me to compete against my brother. But in, in this sense, it felt a little bit more fair because, you know, if we were competing in sports, he would be, you know, he's bigger, he's older, right? But when we're playing Magic, it's more like, oh, we both have, you know, 60 card decks. We both have 20 life. And that was just this really interesting interaction that could only have occurred inside of the, the realm of Magic. It was an interesting way to interact with him. And uh, it's it's actually also very strange because when, you know, later on down the line when he quit and he wanted to come back and play, we would actually play against each other. And since he was gone from the game for so long, you know, he kind of had to understand my thought process at that point and, and respect me from like from a different standpoint, right? So he would look at me and look at my play style and look at how I was playing the game. He'd be like, oh, yeah, that, you know, I understand why you made that play and I understand why you're doing things the other way. And I thought it was very strange because you'd ask, actually go like, ask me for advice. And I'm like, well, that's weird because I used to ask you for advice on everything, right? So that's so interesting. Yeah, it's very strange, you know, it's, it's just kind of a, it's just more along the lines of, you know, how long you've played and, you know, your experience with the game too. So 
And so he taught you how to play, but you continued your learning of magic even after he quit. Right, right, right. And I, I sort of kind of jumped into uh, aspects of the game that he didn't necessarily jump into. He was more of an aggro-aggressive player, and he played a lot of decks that were like that were were shaped that way. But it, it's kind of interesting because you know the deeper the card pool goes, the more access you have to stronger cards that are namely blue. And and so he, I would have to understand how these blue cards would function, and you know that's kind of right up my alley. That's the the, the sweet spot for the decks that I like to play. So. Jordan, how did you improve your skill at Magic? How did you get better to the level that you are now today? That question certainly has a lot of complexity and involves a lot of different steps. And I guess that you could call them alliances or whatnot. But really what it involved was there was a, there was a group of guys that were kind of local on the east side, um, which is like where I'm from and where a lot of my friends are from. Um, and we all just decided one day, I, I told them this, I want to walk into a tournament and I want people to be afraid to play against me. I want somebody to look at me and be like, man, I got paired against him and I don't want to play against this guy. I just don't want to do it. And I, I knew who those players were and I wanted to be one of those players. And so we would just, we would just play a lot. And we, we practiced, I mean, it must have been like four times a day or not four times a day, sorry, four times a week. We would play, we would just play endless amounts, you know, sideboard games. I'm on the play. You're on the play. I've got this sideboard card in my hand in the beginning of the game. How how greatly does it impact the matchup, right? And we played so much to the point where um, people around us, you know, the people that weren't necessarily directly related to what we wanted to do, they were really interested, you know. And we we created this. It was a team called. We called ourselves the Boulder Intimidators. It's a big joke. Uh, <laughs> Boulder Intimidator is a card. Um, they got recently reprinted in Conspiracy. It's a giant. I don't know if you know about this card. It's seven mana, five, five. It's red. Um, it says, uh, target creature becomes a coward. Okay. Target creature becomes a coward. And then the other line on the, on the card says, cowards can't block warriors. And he's a warrior, right? So this idea that it's like you have to have, you have to trust in yourself. You have to have faith in yourself, right? If you make a risky play, you just say, cowards can't block warriors and you just play your spell, right? And, and, and that alliance that was built, you know, that kind of mentality that was built kind of just went around to a lot of these different players, new players, you know, players that haven't played in a long time, players that were about to quit, but then like were eventually revitalized and re-realized. Um, that was kind of just like this big turning point, this team and this community that we built. And it's very interesting because that community that was built actually was the direct arrival of another community, which was on the Seattle side. And I don't know if you know about, there's another team called Team Legacy Tech, which is Chris Morris Lent and Rob Hunsaker and Brendan Gould and all these other Seattle guys. And so we actually had these two different teams that would practice and play tests and play with each other all the time. And we would go to tournaments and we would sit down and the TLT guys would have these blaze orange shirts and we would sit down and we were just a bunch of Asian American guys. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's what the most most of the people on the east side are, right? But it was like me and there's another guy named Dan Wen. We're like the founders of the team, and we would sit down and play. And it was in insane because you know, we would play against the TLT guys. Oh, I got him! We're like, oh, you got me! Like you got to avenge me, right? And we would just it was this really really like closely knit community that that we would play off each other, you know. And eventually there was kind of like this merging of of ideas and merging of friendships, right? Where I I remember one time I went TLT, the TLT guys had a cube night. You know, every every Wednesday, and I worked downtown, and they invited me to the cube. And my friends, you're a traitor! You're a traitor! You went to the other team. You know, you're playing with the other team. Like you can't have that. So it was just really, it was really interesting. It was it was like a very, it was a a very interesting time for for Magic, and for, especially for for the two teams that were kind of playing against each other, playing to get better. And what was this? That was that must have been 2000. That was like 2011, 2012. Uh -huh. Uh, that was actually right after I decided I wanted to play a lot. Uh, there used to be a, a tournament series. There's a, there's a store north, up north called Merkwood. It's very famous for having a lot of eternal events and a lot of eternal tournaments. And they used to have these tournaments, uh, every week, maybe once a month that were like, the top prize was like four four blue dual lands, which is a lot of money. That's wow. about a thousand dollars. You know, it's kind of a lot of a lot of money, and there were there were payouts all the way down to top eight. And if you didn't top eight, you know that was kind of too bad because usually these tournaments were kind of top heavy. 
And so a lot of the really good players would go to those tournaments and they'd try to spike them or there was just a lot of – it was very cutthroat and it was like in the basement of a church. It was kind of insane. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Lots oh. of flavor. <laughs> yeah, it was in the, the basement of a church and this it was like this guy who like really liked rock and roll or whatever and he'd have like these murals painted on the side of like this church and like it was also a vegan restaurant. It was really <laughs> insane and there was like a tattoo parlor and a haircut place and it was all these places that were built into this church, right? And it was like just like this well-known area that all the good players would play at. And I remember my friend told me He's like, oh yeah, you can just borrow my Merfolk deck, you know, and we'll go and play. And it'll be it'll be fun. Like, you know, when was the last time you played Legacy? And I actually I'll get into that later, I suppose. But I went to go up there and play with him, and I didn't expect to win or do well or anything. I was borrowing someone's deck. You never expect to do well. Um, and I ended up uh getting top four on one of Volcanic Island. And it was really insane. I was wow. like, oh my God, like I can do it, you know. I if I I can be I can be a, a competitor. I can be somebody who who goes in there and people are afraid of. And I thought about that a lot. And I'm like, okay, one day, you know, someone's gonna fear me. Someone's gonna not want to play against me. And that'll be the day that like, you know, I'll, I've made it. You know, that's my goal. That's what I want to do. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's kind of how we we all kind of set out. And what's interesting is so Dan Wynn, the other guy on the team, the other founder, he also got top four too. And he was playing with with El I was playing Merfolk, he was playing Elves, which are seen as kind of like these B tier decks. They're like people know about them, but they're like, ah yeah. I mean, nowadays they're considered that. Back then they were considered pretty pretty top tier decks, but it was just a different I don't know, that was a, a different time, a different era than it is now. That is so interesting. Did you play in any big tournaments and things? I mean, that was like the that was the biggest event that I had played in. Well, besides like Watsi sanctioned events, like you know, there was a uh, PTQs. I played in PTQs before that, um, but usually I never really like practiced enough to really felt like I was comfortable to win. You know, and, and I, I I would play in those events because my brother would be playing in those events. He's like, you should play, you know. But it was kind of one of those times when I was just like stepping out and like kind of like trying to grind it for myself and seeing how far I could get. And that was just like the first time that it really clicked for me and things went my way. So that's really awesome. It was nice. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And so there are there are PTQs, there are GPs, and there's also SCG opens. I right. you did really well at an S at a legacy SCG open in 2013. Oh my gosh. You want to talk about that? Wow. That is like I, I suppose if I were to come up with like a claim to fame at all, like, you know, I, and I, I'm like, I'm a player that locals know, but like, it was like really insane because I, I always wanted to compete. And like the goal, the goal for a lot of players is to top eight a uh, star city. That's like, you get your picture taken. They have their profile in there. Like it's super sweet. Your deck list's in there. Right. And I thought about it for a long time. There's a really, there's a really deep backstory to this if you really want to hear it yeah i'd love yeah, to hear it there's a really deep one um i was we knew the tournament was coming right and this is my whole team's gearing up and the other the other guys are gearing up the tlt guys and they've been doing well at events uh namely one guy rob hunsaker just top hating all day long he's really he's a really good uh, he can he understands the meta to a point where he selects his deck better than anybody else wow and the reason why it's so good is he he'll remove prejudice he'll be like you know i don't have to play blue to win i don't have to do this to win you know i'll i'll do what it takes i'll play whatever it takes and i'll just choose the deck that wins and, th and that's how he plays the game that's that's his his primary strength but what was interesting about it is I it was like kind of a wide open format and we really didn't know what to do. There was like a brand new deck on the on the scene. It was like Geist of St. Traft was the new hot. It was all over the place. Geist of St. Traft. And it was like there was two big decks. It was it was like the Rug deck or sorry, it was Rug Delver, the Geist deck with Stoneforge Mystic and Delver Secrets. There was man, I can just rattle off all the decks all day long. Yeah, there was uh Miracles was another was a top tier deck and and Mud and there are all these decks and Reanimator of course. And I actually found this deck. I found this deck on it was the it was a Grand Prix. It was a it was a Grand Prix in Europe. And this guy top 16 with this standstill deck. Okay. If you know anything about standstill, it's like a really obscure card because people are just like well, you know, how do you really maximize what this card does? And for people who don't know, it's blue one for an enchantment. It says, when a player plays a spell, your opponent draws three cards. Okay. And so, like, it's it seems very 
it seems kind of bad. It's like, well, what happens if you're, you know, if you're, if you're losing on tempo or like what happens if you're like losing on board presence? How do you come back? Right. You know, you have to break standstill and your opponent draws three cards and you just lose the game. Well, it turns out that the standstill deck's interesting because like it plays lands as creatures. Right. It just will play the land through the standstill and then the land will activate and turn into a guy and block and do whatever it needs to do. Um, but on top of that, the really, the really pivotal point of that matchup or of that, of that meta was that people were moving away from Nimble Mongoose, moving towards this guy's Saint Traff deck. And like that was kind of this point in time when I realized like, man, if I just play four guys in Saint Traff, you just can't beat it. Like, what are you going to do? Like play your other guys? Like, and I discovered another card that was really sick. It was called uh, Celestial Flare. It just got printed in M14. White, white, two. Uh, target player sacrifices an attacking or blocking creature. And it was really good because sacrifice effects did not exist in colors outside of black. And so leveraging that fact, it was like, well, I can't play black because I need to play Swords of Plowshares. I need to play Lightning Bolt. Um, so I need to figure out a way to deal with enemy geist. And actually, the real big problem was Nimble Mongoose. But the thing is, I would never face a rug deck in that match, in, in that tournament, because everyone was playing the USA Delver deck, right? And so that, that realization was like, okay, well, I can finally play this deck that I really want to play or that I'm interested in playing. And I would, I played, we played tested all the matchups and nothing was hard. You know, I played against elves and I just had 30 pieces of removal and engineering explosives. So built the deck, play tested a lot, went to the tournament and played it. And I was remembering like, I, I, I kind of thought it was a joke. And a lot of people, all of my friends were like, this is going to be great. Like, you know, you're going to show up with this deck that nobody knows about and you're going to play and you're going to lose and we're just going to laugh at you. And it was funny because I was playing and I was playing and I won one and I won one. And I remember I won one of the games on the back of that Celestial Flare, that really stupid sideboard card. And I was like, man, this card's really good. And like, I, it was really, it was hilarious because, you know, people was like, oh, it's not going to work. You're not going to, it's not going to work out. And I kept on playing and I got to round four and I won, remember I won in round four and Glenn Jones sitting behind me. This is before he moved up to Seattle and he goes, Hey, do you want to do a deck tech? And I was like, you know what? I was thinking about doing a deck tech when I saw this deck. And <laughs> I, 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 I was ready to do a deck tech before he even asked me to do a deck tech. And he walked up to me and I'm like, yeah, let's let's go, let's go. And I was really excited, and I was really jittery. I said absolutely like forty times, you know. <laughs> you know, but I was just so excited because it was like, wow, you know, like here's magic. You know, here's a format that everybody believes is like really, really stale and, and really boring, and they think it's always solved and stuff. And 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 you could actually like take the take the game and and do other things with it if you wanted to invest your time, if you wanted to try, if you wanted to if you wanted to do it. And after that, it was like, I was like, okay, well, now I got to, you know, now that this has happened, I got a top eight. And I remember the match right after I did the deck tech, I was so, like, I was so high on my own adrenaline, so high on my own, like, wow, I was just like, I just interviewed and my friends were walking around, like, waving at me as I was interviewing. And I played against uh, the guy who eventually won the tournament. And I sat down and I kept a two-lander and he just crushed me. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> And I remember I was just like, I kept a two-lander. I remember he played. And, and the, the best part about it is he played card. And the thing about Magic, the thing about Legacy is if you've seen one deck and you've seen the way the deck is shaped, you'll know for, you'll know for a fact. Like there's, there's like 60 cards in a deck, right? You'll know that like 50 of the cards are like Brainstorm, Ponder, Force, Will, Spell, Pierce, Days, whatever. I don't care, you know? And then like 10 of the cards are different. And when they play a card that's different in that deck, you're like, okay, he's playing that version. Like, you know, there's only so many things he can do. So he plays Gataxian Probe, and he's playing the USA Delver deck. Yeah. Um, he plays Gataxian Probe, which means he only has two copies of uh, Geist of St. Traft. So, okay, I'm not going to be in any threat. I'm not in any, any danger anytime soon. So I'm just top decking. I'm just top decking. He's just crushing me. He's just attacking me with his Grim Alphamancer. It's awful. It feels bad, man. He's <laughs> <laughs> attacking you. Attacking. Yeah. Not even burning to the face. He's no. attacking you. He's saving it. He's saving it. But I mean, he doesn't know. It. But the thing is, he doesn't know a single thing about my deck. And, and I'm just playing him, and I, and I end up losing. And I feel bad, but you know, I end up rallying back, and I I, I climb all the way up to six one. I, I lose to a 
good friend of Daniel Wynn's, who Daniel Wynn is known as the Elf Master, the yeah. Elf Lord. He wrote, if you are, are familiar with the source, it's the 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 most prominent legacy forum in, in in all of the internet. And he wrote the he wrote the forum for elves. He wrote it. You know, he like he he has all the text. He has, I've read it. Yeah, he's yeah. yeah he's a really good writer and a really inspiring person. You know, somebody who's uh, has dealt with a lot of flack in his life. But, you know, he, he and I practice a lot. So, this guy sits down with Elvis and I'm like, man, do you even know who I practice with? Like, do you even know who my main playtest partner is? And I play him and I just – I end up losing – I lose in three and it's really close. He natural orders for progenitus and I'm trying to find Celestial Flare because it will kill his progenitus. <laughs> <laughs> And I know it, I know he's gonna bring it in because we've played the matchup, but I know he's gonna bring it in. And he he brings it in and and I and it, Celestial Flare is the next card after I die. And I'm like, oh my god. And like what ends up happening, and, and this is like the really this is the really uh, the story. And I, I've since uh, I've certainly since forgiven Dan for this. But I'm 6'2 and I'm the outside shot to top eight. I have the best breakers because my opponent that I lost to can can draw in. And the point that I lost, that I, that I lost to in round five, he's already in. So my breakers are insane. Like there's no, there's no way I'm not going to miss if I X2, uh, assuming that, you know, there's not, it's not uh, a clean chop. Play against an opponent, Martin Goldman cursed, obviously. Really good player. Uh, probably, uh, one of the best, uh, one of the best players just fundamentally in, in, in the state. Him and Jesse Hampton are very good. Um, and I, I play him. I get, I get lucky. Uh, I, I skate. I skate some of his plays. I actually make this really absurd play where um, I, I name. I play Metally Mage and I name a sideboard card that I know he has because we've played before. And like the the, the casters, like this was a camera match, so the casters were just like, "How does he even know he that card's in his sideboard? I'm like, how does he know that?" But, but I knew that, and that was kind of funny. And then uh, we end up making this really complex stack, and I beat him in like a very in a very clean victory. And what ends up happening is, you know, Dan has to play um, Dan. Ends up having to play. He's, I think, he's like uh, in the seven, eight seed or something like that. He he can't cleanly draw necessarily. Um, if if Martin Goldman, I, I get paired up to Martin, who's uh, seven one, and I'm six two. And if Martin wins, then it's not a clean cut, and he's automatically in the top eight. And if I win, I need Dan to win. And what ends up happening is Dan doesn't understand the situation. And I didn't understand the situation. Nobody understood the situation. And we play, and I win, and I need Dan Dan to win, and he ends up drawing. And he doesn't know it, and I actually get ninth. I get ninth. Right on this. Oh my goodness, he needed to win. He needed to play. Yeah, he he did play. Uh And the thing is, halfway through the match, Uh they just said, you know, this is what happened. Jordan won. Jordan wins. You know, you can draw. And, and nobody, and without the implications that if I, if he wins, then I'm in top eight. And the thing about it is, he has, uh, he has one of the easiest matchups in, 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 in the, in, in his, his, his deck's archetype, right? He plays against Affinity, which is like, he, he, he crushes him game one, game two, he's in a very favorite position. They draw, and I miss top eight. But it, but it's, you know, it's okay. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, I was, you know, I was mad, obviously, because um, I want you want to top eight, you know, really badly in you know, the competitive side. But I ended up getting to this, you know, I, I very got very content with when it, what, like the place I finished at, and I got very content with I have a, you know, I've got a deck tech, and that was really sweet in the camera match, um, and it's okay, you know, I, I've since we've we've talked about it a lot, and it, it was just something that happened. It was just another another event in the history and the annuals of magic. That's right. You know, that occurred. That's right. So. Yeah, you are immortalized with <laughs> that deck tech. I watched that deck tech. Yeah. You are immortalized in that feature mat. I remember watching, I think it was Snapcaster, Meddling Mage, and Mishra's Workshop swinging in. <laughs> swinging mm, in. Mm. I remember seeing that. Yeah, and, they were attacking. And, and I remember the commentators at the time, Matthias Hunter, something like that, was just like, yep, leaving that, leaving that sh- the, the factory up front. <laughs> yeah. Leaving up the shops right up front. Right where it needs to be. Yeah, yeah right yeah. where it needs to be. Yeah, and that was a really uh, it was a really interesting game, and I uh, I liked I, I felt like uh, it kind of it, it captured the the amount of magic that I wanted it to. Cool, you know. I felt like I made some plays that were very peculiar um, and ones that I thought were correct at the time. Actually, one of the the, the most interesting play that I made in, in, in the entire game, and this is going to sound really really absurd, was game one. Uh, he mulligans to six. And um, I go island go, and he goes. I think he goes dual, 
Yeah, he goes underground sea, and he. This is from 2013, but I remember it. I yeah. Mean, he, he, he taps Mana to play Gitaxian Probe. But the thing about it is, if he has Underground C and, he, and he's tapping Mana to play Gitaxian Probe, he doesn't have a follow-up play. Like, there's no, there's no reason for him to take two damage. Right. You know, so he doesn't have a Ponder. He doesn't have a Brainstorm. Yeah. And he plays Gitaxian Probe, and I actually spell Pierce just straight away. Mm. And the reason why is because, first off, he's really, you know, he's really excited about the next card he's going to draw. But he's already short a card. Second off, he wants to gain information because the deck plays Cabal Therapy, you know? And so, the the play was actually very, very interesting and, and like, m- much more interesting to me and much more important to me now. But actually, if you watch the game, he ends up having, like, a bunch of Cabal Therapies at, at some point. And, like, me defending my hand, like, defending, like, the information in my hand was – I felt like it was important for the time. And, and based off the, the, the play that he made and the way that he played it, you know, it was certainly something that I was going to look to stop look to try to contain. That's fascinating. I feel like at high level magic, what a lot of players take for granted is that the smallest incremental things make a huge difference. Yeah. Make a huge difference. It's totally true. And I'm learning that. I'm learning that slowly. That's very fascinating. Yeah. And that that was like the the really, the, the one play that I really felt like it was like, okay, well, I, there's no reason for me not to do this, you know? And, and he is expecting to get card, extra cards off of it and I'm not going to let him have it. You know, I'm not going to even give him enough information to know what to cast. What ended up happening, I, I, I think, was kind of my, my friend always, you know, so Sean always makes fun of me. He's like, man, if you didn't have the deck tech, you'd be just playing more serious decks, <laughs> you know? And, and it was kind of, it's kind of true because once you've kind of lived the life of, a, you know, somebody who's created his own thing or, or built something that's, um, that's different, you know, that's, 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 that's unexpected. You know, that, that kind of those, those, those understandings and like those stylistic traits kind of come out, come out in you and you want those to be reflected in every deck you play. Yeah. And so you kind of get really attached to certain cards, cards that were always really good for you. They call them pet cards or pet decks as it were. So, um, yeah, I, I eventually got to the point where I was trying to like make this absurd standstill deck work. It's not going to work. You know, I, they printed True Name Nemesis and your, your removal just doesn't kill it. So what are you trying to beat it? Yeah, but certainly, you know, so that was my stint with that and, and brewing and actually like um, a little bit about my, I guess, my launch into, uh, I guess, competitive competitive legacy. Or I guess if you want to talk about like me getting into magic in general, like competitive magic, it happened back in Kamigawa. It was a long time ago. Very, very, very distinct points in, in the magic timeline. So before that, I was a kitchen table player. I played a lot with my brother. And at one point, um, he was like, you know, let's, let's try to go to a tournament. Let's see what that looks like. And I had never played. And, you know, we, I think at, at that point, um, I was like in sixth grade. He was in ninth grade. So he had like one of those like summertime or like jobs or whatever. He had like had an actual income at some point and was like, buying some cards i remember we went to do you, have you been to shane's sports cards yeah 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 we, we I think we talked about it briefly shane's sports cards i remember i bought um they had we i bought a, a tundra was it a tundra a tropical island there saved up all my allowance it was like 25 dollars broke the bank oh my god it was so expensive 25 dollars <laughs> yeah my brother yeah it was really it was just a lot of money I remember uh, saving up money and uh, it was like my Christmas money. My, my birthday is in November. It's like my Christmas money plus my my, bir- my birthday money. So, November, December. And I bought cards from Star City Games. The big, big no-no. Don't ever do it. Mm-hmm. And I remember I spent – it was it was uh, four – it was like uh, Tropical Islands and Wastelands and, and Forest Wills. And I, I bought all of them at the same time in two GTAs. And it cost me $240. And I was like – Oh my God, like it's so much money, like, but it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. And, and I'll play, you know, I'll play magic and it'll be a lot of fun and I'll get a lot of value out of it. And then, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, I can just sell it back or I can, you know, turn it into something else and we'll figure it out. And I remember my mom was like about to cash out my order and she's like, Are you sure you want to do this? And I'm like, yeah, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. So I used to play at this really crappy card shop. Um, it was in Lake Forest Park called Third Place books yeah there's actually a lot of players in the seattle area that are kind of left over from that era uh-huh. and uh that legacy era it was the legacy before star city came around so the value of cards was like really uh under everything was like very cheap and easy to get 
I got a Caracas from Shane's Big League Sports Cards for 50 cents. That's nuts. <laughs> it's just <laughs> – Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. For, it, she opened – I remember Becky, the, the shop owner. Yeah, I know Opened Becky. a binder and flipped through the page and goes, oh, yeah, this is like about 50 cents. It's uncommon. That's nasty. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really cool, you know, and that that's in the early days of magic. And I remember uh, I tapped my Caracas and I returned to Necroma and I was like – Whoa, that's really good. That's really <laughs> that's really good. Whoa, you know. Oh my god. Yeah, ma- magic was a lot different back then. You know, people had really hadn't really figured out what optimization was, and there weren't a lot of pros looking at it. And you know, the circulation of information was kind of limited. There was like a, there was the source had just started up, and people were just getting into it. But Tarmogoyf got printed, and it was like a couple dollars. I remember that. I remember. I remember. I was playing. There's a program called Magic Workstation, and we would just because it was free to play. It was like, oh yeah, you can just go online and, and play for free, and it's awesome. You know, you get all the cards. Like you just, you should just play on there all the time, and you can just get really good. And I went on there and I played against this guy, and he had like this Tarmogoyf, and I'm like I can't even, I don't even know how to pronounce that card. You know. <laughs> and the funny thing about Eternal players, and this is used to be the mindset. Eternal players used to look at the new set and like. That card's not that good, you know. That yeah. card's that card's not that good because I have all these other cards in the history in the history of Magic. <laughs> these cards are so much better, right? I just remember, you know. And the guy played Tarmac. Like, oh, I could play Werebear. Taps for green. It's so much better. Oh and my god! <laughs> this guy played Tarmac. I was like, oh my god! This thing's. It was like a, he had a card called Seal of Strength. It's an enchantment that yeah. sacks the giant growth. That's right. And he sacked it and he was like, oh, it's attacking you for nine. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What do I do? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and so all these cards kind of came to the forefront of like what good magic is. And, and it's kind of funny because like legacy players, you know, they knew there's a, there's a modern deck called Next Level Blue mm. that played a counterbalance and top. It was invented by Pat Chapin, the innovator, and also right. the, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Pat Chapin, yeah, invented by, by Pat Chapin, and it played Tarmogoyf too. And I remember that was like when legacy players first saw counterbalance top, they were just like, oh my <laughs> God, you could just beat your opponent. Like, it's so insane. And, I, and that was like kind of like a, a revelation for like that little play group because there were all these microcosms of legacy, but there wasn't really a unifying drive to like make it a format, right? And when Star City came around, that certainly – it brought legacy to the forefront of a lot of people and people were just like, that combo is so powerful. That guy just won on turn one and like these plays that they're making, you know, this guy keeps on winning because he's the best player or something like that. That was legacy before and then there was like the fall and then like Star City came around and prices just kept on pushing and they're where they are today. When did you start doing commentary at Card Kingdom? My stint doing commentary, I actually used to play a lot of StarCraft. Um, That's probably where like kind of like this try-hard mentality comes from or whatever. Basically, like I, I used to commentate. I was part of a clan and the clan would have viewings and people would come and view. And sometimes I would talk into my microphone on like Ventrilo or we would be on Skype watching a game and I would just commentate on the game, talk about the little things that players were seeing. And I just kind of got more and more. I mean, that was trying to build up speech fluidity. Whether that's like fully evolved or not, you know, I'm not one to say that. But commentary at at Card Kingdom kind of came around when people wanted the, uh, I guess, the tournament organizer Chris Cornejo wanted to get more people circulated in, into the into the game and wanted to get more people involved in the format that couldn't necessarily play up front, you know. And so my, me commentating was just kind of like this natural merge. I'm just like naturally loud, and I'm like <laughs> I'm naturally loud, and then also. Um, I think about the game from a very different perspective. Yeah, and then I just started – they were like, can you want to talk about the game one time? And I got really excited and, and went from there. Explain how you think about the game in a different perspective. I've come to realize that my understanding of the game is like it's, – it's not, it's not the same way that my friend – like if I were to sit down and talk to somebody about a play that I make or a play that I'm interested in making, it's very like – it's very abstract and obscure. Like I, I actually when I when I take apart like my approach to the game, it's more along the lines of before I make a play, I think about like my opponent's next turn and how their play can hurt me. And if they made that play last turn, it's less likely they can make the play again the next turn, right? Um, I think the primary card that comes to the forefront of my mind is it's called Him to Torok. Yes. It's really powerful. You know, it's black, black, target player discards two cards. 
at random. Random, at random right? Yeah. So it's really good. Um, but the thing about Hymn to Turok is that like uh, it involves like – so first off, it's a huge mana sink. It involves the black seer. Mana base has to be shaped a specific way. Um, there's a lot of other implications where let's say I draw it late in the game. This has a little bit to do with like why I don't like black as a color. Um, but if you draw it late in the game, it's very bad. If you draw it early in the game, it's very powerful. Um, so you should probably try to stop it if you can. And so what ends up happening is I literally, when I sit, I get, sit down against like Charlotte's Bug or Bug Delver, my whole goal is just to stop him to Torah. Stop him to Torah, stop Leon the Veil. That's all you need to stop. Because those are the cards that give them enough tempo advantage to push them into the mid game and win the game. Um, what ends up happening is it becomes more of a game of like, okay, am I dead to him? No, beat him. Okay, am I dead to him? Can I stop him right now? No, can you just take the damage? Right? And what's really fascinating about it is Bug Delver, the deck that plays him, it doesn't have a lot of reach, so it can't actually like finish you off if he doesn't have any creatures on the board. Either play him to Tark or you play Lightning Bolt. You can't play both at the same time. Unless you play Jund, but that's like a whole different story. Yeah. Right? And so what ends up happening is my approach to the game really comes from how is their deck shaped and how is their deck constructed and how do I play my deck or play the cards in my deck to, you know, to, to, to play against their strengths and what they think is going to be strong. Um, you know, Greg Mitchell, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, Greg Mitchell. Yeah. Are you familiar with this show match that he and I once played? A little bit. <laughs> I mean, I, but you're going to you have want, to tell the story. You want me to tell you? Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you have another to, yeah story. You'll have to tell the story. Um, Greg Mitchell. So we, we originally, I was, I was just kind of goofing around and like, there weren't a lot of legacy events going on at the time. And he and I, I was just like, you know what? Anybody that's not named Sean Yu, I'll play you. And I'll play you for whatever you want to do. I don't care, you know? And I was, and Greg was like, I'll play you. What are the terms? How are we going to do this? And we agreed on this really bizarre format because everybody knows about Pokemon. Everybody played Pokemon or knows something about Pokemon from right. when they were a kid, right? It's like, okay, you're sending out your Pokemon and you battle and then the next one comes out, right? So, we, we both chose three decks and it was like, okay, we're going to play Pokemon style where we're going to each bring our decks out, right? And then if you lose, you got to bring out another deck, right? right? Yeah. So, like that was the whole idea behind um, the show match. And it, show matches were really common in esports prove your masculinity or something ridiculous like that. And so we we were like, okay, we're gonna do, you know, as many matches as it takes. And the amount of decks you have left alive, you know, Pokemon you have left alive, you would win that much in money. And it would be like really intriguing and people would be excited to watch. And so we built all this hype up and Greg got all his friends from um from Georgia because he's originally from that area. And he got them all to turn tuned in and watch when we played. And it was really funny because Greg Mitchell, like fundamentally He's known for winning this Star City event where he played him to talk. Uh, he played a Bug Delver deck. Really, like he he's really well known for it, and all the deck, like all the cards in it. I I knew and knew them all. I knew knew what the deck did, and I knew that he was going to play him to Torok. Like it was just a natural card for him to play. Him to Torok and Abrupt Decay. Turns out, him to Torok, really bad against a card called Divert. Like really bad. Divert is one blue, and it says. Change the target of a spell, unless your opponent pays two. So if they him you and you divert their him, then they just him themselves. <laughs> 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 yeah, so it's kind of insane because I knew that he would want to play him to Torak because he he traditionally has always been kind of gravitated towards that kind of deck. And so when we sat down to play, I was like, man. First spell out of his hand. I, I remember I drew a hand and it had divert. And I'm like, man, the first spell I'm out of his hand, I'm just going to shoot it back at his face, see what he thinks about oh it. Oh, my God. And we're playing for like kind of a lot of cash. So I'm like, really hope this works out because I don't know if it's going to be that good. First spell he casts his thoughts, he's going to just shoot it back and I'm just like, <laughs> 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 Yeah, it really mattered. It, it, it was like kind of this really absurd play. And I remember like – we were sitting down. We had like cameras on us because we, everybody wanted to cast the game, and there were like people that were spotting. And as soon as like cast it, people were just like, "Oh, <laughs> oh my <laughs> god, yeah, oh my god!" And it was like this really, it was like this really sneaky play because people were just like, "Whoa, this guy just got leveled!" Like, That's just got, too funny. oh my god, yeah. So I ended up playing him a lot. We played a lot. Um, I beat it. I beat him in three because he played two of his decks. Played him to Tarak. Really bad for saying. Oh that. my gosh! Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, he got swept, and and that's like the story of like the show match, and and later on I would get challenged by other other players that would be interested in doing that. But it's kind of funny because like that whole um, that whole idea of playing these these games that people would would talk about, you know, for for X number of like that the idea was to create a memorable match, you know. That that whole idea came from just not being able to play a lot, you know, not being able to express and and play magic and and and, and show it off. But what was cool about it is eventually, you know, and that's kind of the, right at the time when when Card Kingdom started broadcasting their events, it kind of got that got heated up. So, you know, you could kind of go and play somebody. I actually have played Greg several times on camera at Card Kingdom since then, and he just beat me every time. He just figured me. He just figured me out. I don't know. That's too funny. Yeah, it's really funny. Oh my gosh. Jordan, as an elder dragon, what kind of advice do you have for newer players? You know, I think for new new players, it's all about playing a lot. And it's also about being very realistic with your uh with your plays and your outcomes. New players have this tendency to 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 kind of like reflect on a game and be like, well, there's nothing I could have done there. You know, there's no approach to the game that I could have done better. I there's no possible way I could have seen that coming, right? And at a certain standpoint, it's really important for somebody to kind of come in and critique your play and for you to step back and be like, you know what? You're right. I that was a bad play and I made a mistake. You know, and I think that that understanding and and that your ability to uh, step back from your ego right is is certainly very important there's a lot of there's a lot of players out there especially in the i guess in, in the nerd world or the nerd kingdom where they always want to be right you know they always want to be people always want to like look up to them for a certain way in a certain light but in order for that to happen you have to be wrong a lot you have to lose a lot you know and and i think that for a lot of new players they just need to they need to play a lot they need to lose a lot and once they do that, you know, once they've kind of broken themselves in and they understand the reason why they're doing – the things are happening the way they are, they will eventually be able to overcome these losses and win, and win those games that they usually lose. When people are searching for enjoyment in the game and they want to search for enjoyment in the form of winning, they don't get that. You have to have a love for the game and the way to get better is to learn to lose because losing <laughs> yeah. is figuring out what doesn't work, which right. is access to winning. Right. Certainly. It's a very interesting concept, but yeah, I would certainly wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I think one of the interesting things that that I would tell a new player is think about the implications of your opponent and, and what your opponent's trying to do. You know, and maybe that gets like super psychoanalytical, but maybe not. And maybe I'm just you know kind of just <laughs> I overthink things, I overanalyze. But I think in order to win the in order to win at Magic, that's something that needs to occur. You know, it, it, you really need to, when you sit down, a good example is when you sit down to play against your opponent. What's, what's the color of their sleeves? Oh, interesting. What's the color of their deck box? How are they dressed? Who are they? You know, what does this person look like? How do they appear against me? You know, and, and based off of those things, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe you need to be judgmental to do that. But you, you have to try to figure out, get as much information from your opponent as you can. I'll give you an, a, a really good example. There was a one time I was playing in a side event um, at a Grand Prix. Actually, this is a really good story. I played against an opponent. It was uh, round one. And my opponent sat down with Ultra Pro sleeves, blue Ultra Pros, really crappy ones. Uh, he had a hoodie on and it was just this guy. He was like really unshaven. And I was like, I was like... Like rubbing my hands together, it's a burn player. He's going to play burn. <laughs> He's gonna the, play that's the burn. first thing he does, you know? And the first card he plays is Tropical Island, tap, explore, wasteland, wasteland you. And I'm like, He's, play <laughs> 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 He's playing lands. Like <laughs> and I, I just, you know, I, I was, you know, I was trying to tap in, fully tap into like my understanding of the game. And it, it, one of the things I, I was able, eventually able to leverage and win out of it. Um, but I had to, I do, I had, I had to approach the game like in a different manner. I'd be like, okay, well, maybe if he, if he like makes a mistake, I can win. And I ended up winning because he made a mistake, right? But my, you know, when I looked at him, it was like, man, I can approach him like he's playing burn. I get completely blown out. Like, there's no way I can win now. You know, Lance is just an awful matchup, but. And for the reference for the audience, <laughs> Burn and Lens are two completely different spectrums of the legacy meta, right? Yeah, Burn is probably the, the a slower control deck, a deeper control deck than 
most of the blue decks. It, it actually, historically, it used to control their opponent and win by attacking with Creeping Tarpid. This is well before the, uh, the age of, uh, what is it, Merit Lodge and the, and the, and the way that, that that land ability works. This is well before that. And this is back, and also when people used to kill with like Punishing Fire to the face, like that sounds ridiculous. It's a one damage turn. Um, and then like Burn is like the most aggro attacking deck you can get, you know, it just plays, like he tries to kill you on turn three with like a slew of burn spells, you know? And so I, 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 I presumed my opponent was playing a deck that was relatively budget and kind of cheap, primarily based off of how he looked. And I, <laughs> I got, I got a bit really bad for it. And he played, you know, the, he's playing one of the most expensive decks to play in the format. And hey, that's sometimes you just make a wrong judgment call, but you got to try. That is so insane. <laughs> you oh got to do what God. you can do. That is too funny. Yeah. Jordan, what advice do you have for players as they're trying to improve? Oh, that's a great – wow, that's that's really tough. A player that's trying to improve, you know, um, that barrier is is a really hard barrier to break. When we when a when a player does successfully break the barrier of, of improvement and we I, I, it's ascension and we call it breaking through like breaking through to the next level, um, it, it's when they actually have their first top eight, their first like large cash. They get a lot of cards or a lot of uh, card stock that they can they can use and they can trade and they can get the, the cards and the decks they actually want to play and. Before the, the buildup before that usually involves just a ton of, of playing and, and they need to understand all the matchups. They need to understand the reasons why they're losing. Uh, they need to understand a whole bunch of other things that they weren't necessarily interpreting before, right? Like, I think what, what's really interesting with a lot of new players is you need to sit them down with their with their mechanical play, their turn by turn play, and say, "Why are you doing that? You know, what are you worried about? Why are you doing this when he's doing that? You know, and how how exactly can you leverage the cards you have available to you now? You know, to to get that positive outcome in the end. And just those basic building blocks, those basic mechanics, are really important for newer players to grasp and understand. Without those, it's really hard to say. You know." How do you break through? How do you win a tournament? Well, you're in. A, you're sitting down with you know 72 other people that want to that want to take your money, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'll, I'll tell you another really interesting concept that kind of came about from playing a lot is when you sit down to play. It's you know if if you if you don't top eight for the tournament, you're essentially donating money to the prize pool. Like you're just giving it to them. Yeah. You're just, you're just sitting there and saying, you know, this $30 that I could have done, you know, I could have bought other cards with, you know, if you're a newer player, I could have bought other cards with, you're just going to take it. You just have it. You know, I don't, I don't want it anymore. I can buy, I could buy a fetch land or I could buy other cards, but I don't want it anymore. And like, that's like really hard for a lot of players to like perceive and like that, that like that understanding of like, you're, you're like taking a risk. You're taking a chance. You really have to care about it. You have to want to win and the will to win has to be strong. And if it's, if it's not there, then you know it's hard. It's hard to take down a tournament. It's hard to gain respect, right? Yeah, that's definitely that is definitely some words of wisdom. And I think that the other thing that magic players like you could consider is if you're not going to be here, you know, what else would you be doing? What else would you rather be doing? Yeah, because there's always, I mean, you know, there's always something else that you could be doing. It'd be really nice for me to go and win a magic tournament and also sit on my butt. And, you know, eat a pizza and watch <laughs> Netflix, right? I mean, just like as an example, right? Yeah. I don't know. There's always other costs, right, associated with playing games. So, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you some some insights and some understandings. Maybe this, this per- has a little bit like some personal implications about um, my understanding of magic. But, you know, s- starting from a long time ago, back when the – I guess when the world was new – I suppose there were actually like all the iterations of the decks that you see today all existed in some form or another historically. Wow. They were all, they've all been around for a long time. Um, counterbalance top to a lesser extent because those cards are modern, you know, they're modern playable, right? They're more modernized, but historically magic, like all the other decks you see, like even storm, storm existed certainly, um, in warm form or another, uh, Delver, Control, blue-white control. I would actually say that counterbalance existed, but it was in a different form. It, it, it was a deck called Scepter Chant, 
that was really uh, peculiar. I don't know if you're familiar with that deck. No, I'm not. It, it plays a card called Isochron Scepter, which is yeah, like the, the scepter, baby. <laughs> which is like the most probably the most Timmy or the most Johnny card, I suppose. Johnny being a combo, right? Right. The most Johnny card you can play, and it actually played like the. It was like a Johnny combo played in a blue deck. And so Orim's chant is one white and says target player can't play spells. Oh, I love it. it. Yeah. It's, and, but then you can also play a kicker for an additional white. And when you cast a card off of Orim's chant, your cat, you cast the spell. So you get to pay the kicker if you want. Turbo fog, baby. You're, right. So you would, you would make it so you can't get attacked and your opponent can't play spells. You just do this on their upkeep every turn and they just can't win. Right. Um, but you know, and so all these decks existed in one form or another. Um, Bug to a lesser extent. Bug came more around the era of Tarmogoyf and uh, Tombstalker. You know, Him to Torak was obviously a, a very powerful card back then. But yeah. this is before – even before Thoughtseize, you have to understand. So, the, the real combo was Duress and Cabal Therapy was like the two cards. And actually, Chris Pakula, so the meddling mage, yep. um, his deck was also really popular. It was called Dead Guy Ale. Um, this was before Stoneforge Mystic, but it played like Dark Confidant, Hypnotic Spectre – Literally, a blast from the past classic. Um, but the, the, these, all these decks did exist in some form or another. And what's interesting about it is when you talk about the ability to, you know, how de- certain decks overcame other decks, you can actually find those those texts in the history of Magic. Right? They 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 exist. They have existed before, and it's just upon the player to go back and say, how do I beat that deck in this current era? Like, how do I beat it with all of these other you know, all these other incoming pressures around me. Jordan, I want to ask you some quick rapid fire questions that I ask all of my guests. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So question number one, of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, green, and red, what is your favorite color and why? If you asked me when I was 12, my favorite color would have been green, very clearly. Uh, The biggest and the baddest creatures were green. The ones that were hardest to kill were green. Uh, Green was sweet. Because everything was huge, and if it was huge, your opponent couldn't kill it. Uh, if you ask me today, in terms of what I'm most successful with, I'd have to say blue, because it gives you the most options, and it it, it provokes the most thought, and it's uh, it's challenging, and it's it's interesting. It's the exact opposite of green, I suppose. I love it. Yeah, Jordan, if you could change something about Magic: The Gathering, what would it be? Oh man, change something about Magic. You know, you'd probably get this answer from a lot of eternal players. But if I could change anything, it'd be to remove that that stupid restricted list. The the restricted, not the reserve list. The reserve list. Sorry, the reserve. Yeah, sorry. Excuse me. The reserve list. Uh, If you if you could get me to do, if you could get anyone to do anything, it would be to remove the reserve list and to just to open up and get as many players playing this really sweet format called Legacy. And and get as many people in there playing as much as you can. And I think that if if the format was more available and more accessible, it would make for some really compelling magic and some really compelling magic stories. I think it's really terrible when somebody can't play because they can't afford cards. Simultaneously, I understand that there isn't – you know, when you have a trading card game, a collectible card game, I understand there is a necessity for rarity and a necessity for scarcity. You know, that, that that's what drives people to buy packs and things like that. But uh, aside from that, I, I certainly do wish that the reserve list was gone. Number three, if you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? Oh, man. Another great question. Um, I think, you know, but this is more of like a – this is more of a question for like just people in general and maybe more so for Magic players because they lack it so grotesquely. You know, I, I think the, the real thing that I would give to just most anybody is just perspective. Have some perspective. You know, try to, try to understand, understand, like even in, in magic, you know, it's understanding like what, what's important in the game, understanding how to win and how to, how to achieve that victory. Um, but then also I guess in, in life, it's just understanding like who you are and where you come from and, and being true to yourself and, and, you know, taking yourself out of yourself and looking at somebody else and, and figuring out who that person's about and what they're about. That sounds like a lot. There's like a couple different parts to that answer, but like the second half is certainly a lot deeper, right? I mean, I, I str- certainly strive to be more than just a magician. You know, I, they, uh, I do things, you know, outside of magic that are, you know, are not really related at all. And people are usually surprised and they're like, oh, you do that. I, I didn't know that, you know, 
Um, but yeah, you know, perspective. Perspective, I think, is like one of the most important things in life. Jordan, what do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? Magic is gonna is gonna. I, I really hope that Magic goes through a Renaissance. That's like that's like me being as optimistic as I possibly can be. Uh, I hope that people will look upon Magic in a positive light. And they'll look, I mean, like, I, I kind of feel like the way that I feel about it right now is Watsy's kind of groveling for money. Um, they keep on churning out products that sort of grasp the consumerism side of a nerd, uh, if I can call them nerds, like dork, a geek, I don't know. Um, but they, they sort of, they grasp that side of them, you know, when they put out products like the new Commander product or the new Dual Ducks product, right? They always try to get people in and sweep people in. And, and I think that what, what really sucks about it is they don't really provide a really strong foundation for players to learn. They just kind of get them in the door, you know? And what ends up happening is you have this mass entry and mass exit that occurs. It's not really sustainable, you know? It doesn't really say that I want players to be here for a long time, you know? And I, and I, sort, of, I sort of feel, to some respects, I feel alienated as like an, an eternal player where like I didn't feel like Watsy wanted me there. You know, they didn't really like a good, a good example is when the 20th anniversary of Magic came around, they just put out an FTV and said, cool. You know, that's all they did. You know, they didn't, they didn't really look back and celebrate the history of Magic. But if you, a really close, a uh, closely related example is if you look at when Pokemon turned 20, they had a Super Bowl commercial. They had like, they went all out, you know, and I think the best part about that was their, their commercial got spoiled before the Super Bowl even happened. And Pokemon was just like, you know what? That's okay. You know, I, I'm really, I just really am excited for people to just kind of re-explore this world that you explored as a kid, you know? And what's funny about it is I see a lot more people and maybe Pokemon was bigger for uh, the millennial generation. You know, I, I can't, I, I certainly am not sure, but people will look back on Pokemon and think of a fond time in their lives. A fond time, a positive time. When people look back at magic, at the, their career as a magician, will they look back positively, or or will they just see a you know a dungeon basement where four hundred pound men were just playing cards <laughs> against each other, right? Four hundred pound men, <laughs> and like I'm obviously like <laughs> I'm obviously like you know bastardizing it or whatever. But it's just it's one of those things that you you when you think of when you think about. All these other communities that have been built up, you know, like I, I can't say positive things about the Yu-Gi-Oh community because I've heard terrible things about it, you know, from from other people I've never played. I don't associate with those. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, I it's it's one of those things where you just kind of think about like, do I look back fondly on this event, fondly on this game? Do I think positively about it, or do I think about how it has kind of progressed, you know, into it, something that I don't necessarily like? That I, I I play because I'm sort of slaved, you know. I'm chained to it because I've invested so much time in it. It's it's hard. It it really is. Jordan, do you have any asks or requests of the magic community? My relationship with the magic community has been fantastic. It really has. You know, I I think I feel like the people that I've met in on my journey, I couldn't have asked for for better friends and and for better fellowship, for better competition, and for better lessons learned. Uh, I couldn't have asked for more. And I think I really just hope that it's more of an ask for Watsy. You know, I really hope that Watsy takes care of the new players coming in, you know, and, and it really just kind of pushes them in and, and there's, there's more people to take up banners and more people to take up flags and, and to be competitors and to, to try to improve the community and do what they can. Yeah. I, there's not really much that I could any more that I can ask of, of where I've come from because it's been so positive. It's been so unbelievably good, you know? That's great. Um, is there anything that we did not get to talk about that you want to talk about? Yeah, you know, I could I could speak really quickly to one thing. Sure. You know, and I maybe I just didn't really get a chance to talk a lot about it. So, I have an older brother that plays Magic that I, I look up to tremendously. I remember the first time I top-aided. Is that tournament in Merkwood? I called him up. I told, him, 
damn, I, I top eight it. I'm so excited. You know, I'm so excited. And every time after that, I would call him, Dan, I top eight it. You know, like I'm playing this deck. You know, I, I think I'm paired up against this guy. What do I do? You know, what do I do? And he would always talk to me, talk me through what was going on. And it was kind of insanely, this is kind of when I was turning the corner from a competitive player and a competitive standpoint. And he'd always used to tell me. And I remember one time I had this really, really bad beat, awful beat. I was playing Merfolk versus Rugdelver. And I played out like I would Merfolk, Merfolk, Merfolk. I played out three guys. And I was like, okay, this is a really good play. This this hand can't lose to Fire Spout, right? Cowards can't block warriors. I, I, I played the cards and I said the words and I looked at my opponent and I was like, you can't beat me. And he played, you know, there's a call called Rough Tumble, right? It's red one, deals two damage, all creatures out flying. He had two of them. He played them twice. And he just killed all my creatures. And I was like, oh my God, I was so close to winning. You know, I was going to attack him for 12 and attack him again. He would die. Perfect merfolk math. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> but that's what I was saying. You know, and that's what I thought about. I was like, oh, you know, I I was so close. You know, my mer- my lords of Atlantis were, they couldn't be lightning bolted. You know, he had to have pyroblast and then a sweeper. And if he had a sweeper, it had to be like pyroblast, lightning bolt to block my guy. I was like so convinced that I won. I was so convinced that I should have won. And my brother is just like, you know, cowards can't block warriors. That's just one mindset. That's just one thought process. It's one thing to just try to be along the line, like that one mindset, you know, that, that one thing that's going to, that, that you think you're hardwired to do. And it's another thing to be flexible as a magic player and to think critically about your opponent's lines and the cards you can have. And if you take a step back and you think about those things and you think deeply about how your opponent's been playing previously, you can figure out what's in their hand. You don't need, you know, you, you don't even need to play Gataxian probe. You should already know. You should already know before it even happens. Wow. And, and he, 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 he sort of lectured me. But in a way, it was more like – it was more empowering because it was like, all right, you know, I got to this stage. You know, I really wanted to to keep on trying to play and break through and and be kind of considered a, a bona fide player as it were. But it wasn't that, – that, that moment, it wasn't my time. My time would come later. That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, man. That is so it's crazy. Yeah, and so my brother is a really great player, and and I don't know if he'll ever listen to this. I'll certainly send it to him, and he, he can get it. He can he can go ahead and, and give it a listen. But he's a he's a great player. He's played for a long time. Uh, I've always looked up to him, and he played uh, he played a really hard into the Pro Tour qualifier circuit when back when that was a big thing. He played extended primarily. Um, a lot of aggressive decks, like I said. And he ended up making the Pro Tour uh, one time, and he got to go to California and play, and that was really sweet. Um, unfortunately, he was, went to school like in Claremont, McKenna, if you know where that place yeah, is. Yeah, I know where that yeah, is. Yeah, Claremont, McKenna, which is like right next – and then the, the tournament was in Hollywood, so we just <laughs> – <laughs> he didn't really get to go that far. He was like, "Oh, it's super lame." But he didn't get to go to Tokyo or yeah, Barcelona. Exactly, exactly. But it was it was funny. You know, it was a good experience for him. And he he kind of told me that you know he really enjoyed it and he was going to try to keep on competing and stuff. And eventually, uh, his uh, spark for the game died out. But he'll be back. You know, they're always they always come back. Yeah, magicians always come back. What are you playing now? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, in my infinite wisdom, like I have actually – I had a lot of cards. I had a really big collection. Um, I had a lot of my additional income going to magic. And the idea was if I ever wanted to sell out, I could certainly do that. And um, the cards were appreciating faster than – and they were appreciating in a more safer manner than like stocks and like other investments that you could have. They were more liquid actually, which sounds ridiculous, but they were, you know. And so, I had a lot of cards. Uh, I since – I uh, took those and somebody offered me. I had one big offer for about 30% of my collection for all my dual lands. Sold that. Had another offer for my power. Sold that. And that was like really insane. I just didn't have any collection anymore. And I'm like, well, if I want to come back and play, I need to, I need a deck that I'm going to like a lot. So, um, and I need a deck that I'm not going to sell. I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel like. <laughs> I'm not going to feel like I want to uh, take this deck and just turn it into money and walk out the door. You know, I need to be able to to, to be there every day. Or, I mean, if I do play. And so, I, I took a deck called uh, Stoneblade. It's a very common deck. Uh, it actually plays to all of my likenesses as a magician. Um, it, it plays to the... Do you remember uh, maybe yesterday or two days ago, I talked about the three ways or the four ways of stopping combo. It plays to all those different ways, you know, and um, that is kind of like the big selling point of 
why I chose that deck. And I'm actually like defacing all the cards that I have that I own. I actually have a bunch of playset of whiteboarded force of wills, which is just not a thing that ever exists ever. It's hilarious. Um, and it's kind of troll, but yeah. So you're defacing your cards on purpose so that you would be forced to hold them and they would never have any value if you sold them. So you're forced to keep them and play the game. Yeah, or they'd have a lot of like, they'd have not very much value. That's insane. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. You white-bordered, black-bordered force of will. <laughs> well, I mean, they only come in black-bordered. They only come in black-bordered, <laughs> but you basically white-bordered them. I mean, like that, I think... What would that really sh- – I mean, and I know that it sounds insane. For like a player who has um, – who's starting out and doesn't necessarily – can't get the best condition cards that he, he can get. Um, <laughs> that actually, it just makes it – it makes me less likely to attempt to not have any cards at some point in my lifetime. Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of goofy. I always thought that whiteboard cards were really cool looking. That's so funny. That's so funny. Well, you heard it here first on Kitchen Table Magic. Jordan says, if you ever want to stay in the game, deface your cards. <laughs> Wreck your cards, guys. Just white border everything you have. You want to see a... Maybe we can get a... You want to get a picture of... I'm definitely going to take some pictures and put them in the show. I'm definitely going to take pictures for the blog article. Okay, Absolutely. sure. Oh yeah, my God, sure. That's way I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jordan Isaka. If this conversation has made you interested in Legacy, watch Card Kingdom's Legacy Weekly events every Monday at 6.30pm Pacific Standard Time on twitch.tv slash cardkingdom. You'll see many of the players that we talked about in our conversation probably playing on stream. Card Kingdom also has a Legacy Preservation Series 1K tournament. Links to their schedule will be provided in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. And Jordan laid out some really good wisdom for improving as a Magic player. If you ever run into Jordan in the Seattle area, bug him about ways to improve at Magic. I have just a couple more housekeeping things I want to share before I preview the guest of the next episode. I want to thank everyone for listening to Kitchen Table Magic. Listenership has exploded from a few hundred plays to now almost 10,000 plays within just the last month. Thank you to everyone listening that has shared Kitchen Table Magic with a friend. If you've noticed, I've made slight changes to every episode of the show. That's because of all the wonderful feedback that I get from you, the listener. I love hearing from you, so please tweet me at KTM Podcast. Write me an email, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... Actually, I'm not going to tell you. It's a surprise, but I'll give you a hint. Some would say that this person is currently the best Magic player in the world. Gee, I wonder who it could be. But here's something cool to consider in the meantime. Would you like to submit a question for me to ask next week's mystery guest? If so, head on over to Patreon. If you're a Patreon supporter, your neato perk is that you get to send in questions you'd like me to ask my guests for upcoming episodes. To be honest, I'm not even sure what we're going to be talking about. I better get on that. I can't be asking my guests lame questions. Well, everyone, thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in to next week's episode when my very special mystery guest will be revealed. 